Thanks, Dave. Morning, everyone. Why don't you grab a Bible and open it to First Samuel chapter 24. Uh, that's sort of going to be the main passage that we're going to be in uh, this morning, First Samuel chapter 24. Has anyone played a paddle? Just by show of hands, quickly. This is appalling. All right. Well, you're all going to be there, I assume. It is a lot of fun. I mean, I think you need to make some massive changes to your lives, guys. If you haven't played that game yet, I'm very disappointed. Um, sorry, this thing keeps turning off here. There we go. We are continuing in our series on the life of David. If you have missed the first few weeks, let me give you a quick, a very quick catch-up. Uh, we looked at the anointing of David, how the Lord anointed him as a young shepherd boy to be the future king. Uh, and then we looked at David's uh, victory over Goliath and what that means for us. Uh, and then we looked, uh, last week Dave looked at the friendship and the relationship between David and Jonathan. Um, and uh, the meaning of true friendship and contrasting that. And it was, if you missed it, it was great. Dave did a great job. And today we're going to look at David and Saul. So... As we're going through the life of David, we're trying to um, put David's life into relationships. So you'll see all the way through, we're looking at David's life through the relationships that he has with different people. And today is the relationship he has with, with Saul, which I suppose if you're taking notes, uh, and if you're not off later on, it's a very bumpy relationship. This is not a healthy kind of like bromance um, this is a bit like the relationship that Novak Djokovic had with Kyrgios before they made up at Wimbledon kind of thing. And if that went sailing past you, then you obviously haven't watched enough tennis either. And there's another thing you need to remedy in your life. But um, before we dive into a few detailed things around, uh, uh, I, want us to, I want us to look at, in broad strokes at the relationship that David has with, with Saul and then zero in on where the, where the Bible gets to. Uh, because it's very interesting uh, what things are included in, this, in the life of David and the relationship between David and Saul. Why we have two lengthy accounts of David sparing Saul's life. Uh, they're there for a very good reason, and we're going we're to dive into those um, in a second. But I want to start a little bit with where Saul is. Um, what's, what's going on uh, in his approach to David? Here are a couple of verses just to give you an insight into how Saul feels about David. From 1 Samuel chapter 18, you may remember that the, the people come up with a song after David starts to show some aptitude for war. He says, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul hears the song and, and he takes issue. And it says in verse 8, Saul was furious and resented the song, resented the people singing the song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? This guy is after my kingdom. So Saul watched David jealously from that day onward. 1 Samuel 18.12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. Saul hadn't recognized yet that the Lord had departed from him. And the anointing of God had rested on David and was no longer on Saul because of Saul's disobedience to God. First Samuel 18, 15, when Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. First Samuel 19, verse 1, Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. <laughs> he basically puts out this 
pit on David. Like, hey, if anyone can take, he orders them, he's the king, he orders them to kill David. Basically, what you see happening in the nation is active defiance of Saul. Because Jonathan refuses to kill David, and many of the other men, they don't, they go along with Saul on this hunting expedition. And as you read through 1 Samuel, which just as a sidebar, I would encourage you to be doing as we're going through the life of David. There's way too much for us to read through the passages here uh, on a Sunday. And I encourage you, either in your devotions or just on your own um, time, to read through this. Um, and you'll get the sense here that um, Saul becomes a man absolutely consumed with taking out David. And uh, we read it in that, first, um, in that first reference in 1 Samuel 18. It says, Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The, his jealousy over David starts to become this all-consuming thing in Saul's life. It, it's an all-consuming thing. You almost, in, in the narrative of 1 Samuel, it only gets shaken off once by the Philistines attacking. The Philistines start attacking the nation, and he breaks off his pursuit of David and goes and deals with the Philistines. And as soon as that's peaceful again, he goes back to trying to find David. He's just got guys, spies out looking for him. He's picking up intel. He, this is a guy who's obsessed with eradicating one guy. And why am I mentioning that? Because it, it struck me spending a lot of time in this, just how fundamentally jealousy can shape a life. And if you only came here this morning to hear this, if you have jealousy bobbling around somewhere in your heart, you need to take evasive action and bring your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, search me and know me. What's going on in me? Jealousy can consume you. This is why we see Saul acting in the most outlandish ways. He's a man who's absolutely consumed with his jealousy over David. And guys, we need to keep short accounts with this. I think the human condition is that you're going to be jealous of somebody at some point, at multiple points along life. You're going to be jealous of people's stuff, their status in life, their achievements, their good looks, unless you're particularly blessed in that department, which from what I can see, most of us are going to struggle. Um, I couldn't resist, I'm sorry. I know that's what you were thinking when you were looking at me, so I just I said back to you what you were thinking. We're going to struggle with jealousy because that's, that's the human condition. And we need to make sure we bring our hearts to the Lord and say, hey, Lord, what's lurking around? What's going on in me? What's driving my thoughts and actions towards people? And ruthlessly deal with that. <clears throat> Let's read First Samuel chapter 24. We're going to read the whole thing. It's always difficult with these narratives. I always want to read and talk and read and talk and read and talk, but then it makes the story very disjointed. So let's just read the whole thing, and then I'm going to pull out some things that I think are helpful for us this morning in this passage. First Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you, so that you can do to him whatever you desire. 
Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing. I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. After that, David got up, went out of the cave, and called to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of people who say, Look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you. And said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord, since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. When David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, Is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me uh, today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with good for what you've done to me today, for me today. Now I know for certain that you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went back home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray together. Father, every time we read your word, every time we gather to hear it, um, we come needing the same thing, needing you to speak, needing you to teach us by the work and the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have the words that we most need to hear. You know intimately the condition of our hearts. You know what you've prepared in advance to do amongst us as your people this morning. And we simply this morning look to you, our faithful Father, and ask that you would speak to us, that you would impart grace to us, strength to us, conviction and encouragement to us through your word. Thank you that in the mystery of how you work, you shape us, you strengthen us, you transform us 
through the hearing of your preached word. And so we look to you now for that work again, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. There's so much detail uh, in that story. Um, uh, and I, I'm going to skip over quite a bit of it just because we don't have enough time. Uh, I wrestled long and hard about doing like three weeks on David and Saul. But I also want us to finish the life of David before 2024. Um, and so we're going to, you know, do the highlights package kind of thing of this going through the life of David. But there are a few things that I think... You see here, um, 1 Samuel is at pains to contrast Saul and David. You just see such a distinction between these men and how they are, how they live, the decisions, the decisions that they make. Uh, and I suppose if you're taking notes, I've packaged it in a way that will hopefully help you be able to take notes and make you remember, help you remember it. Um, the characteristics of a life yielded to God, because as, as I've spent more and more time in this, that, that's what you get struck by is that David just seems to have a life that is yielded to God, and it stands in stark contrast to Saul, who's just wrapped up in himself. He's a paranoid a king trying to wipe out his enemy, who, and, and he has these like weird, almost like schizophrenic episodes, and you'll see them again here. He has no understanding of grace. The Lord has departed from him, and I think it's just such a stark contrast between, between David and Saul. And so I want us to look at what the characteristics we see in a life that's yielded to God that we see in David. And the first one is this. I don't know how many there are, but the first one is this, is that the life yielded to God um, experiences conviction. A life yielded to God experiences conviction. You see, um, you see in this account um, David and his men. Now, we don't know how many men. He had somewhere between four and 600 men. At this stage. So some of them are hiding in these caves. And don't think like the caves in the Drakensberg, like this little hollow thing. These are like interleading caves. The, the, the caves at Engedi there, sort of west of the Dead Sea. It's sort of this, it rises sharply there. And it's just interwoven like caves. You can just cruise in between them all the way. And like they can, that's where they could hide in there and live there for ages. So don't think like little cave. Think multiple caves. So there's lots of guys hiding in there. Saul goes in there to relieve himself. Um, I, mean, I don't need to expand on, on that. Like, this is not a uh, youth group, a bunch of teenage boys, like, giggling their way through it. It's a, he, nature calls and he needs to go kind of thing, goes on his own. You know, he's the king. And, um, I mean, I've, I've lived in this story a little bit. You know, Saul didn't have a phone with him um, to go to the loo. So there he's, like, not distracted. There he's doing his thing kind of thing. Somehow David manages to sneak up on him and cut off the corner of his robe. His, his kingly robe. Saul is still the king. He has special kingly robes. He manages to cut off the corner of his robe, sneak back undetected. There's all this conversation going on in the back of the cave. All of his men saying, this is our day. This is our time. We're taking this, this clown down. It's, it's our time to shine. Come on, and we're going to talk about that in the next point. But you're struck by the most immediate thing that happens here. David gets back there, and what happens? It says in verse 5, it says afterward, after he's done this deed, it says his conscience bothered him because he had cut the corner of Saul's robe. If you have an ESV translation, I think it does a better job of translating. It says that his heart struck him. His heart struck him. 
he's gone and done something he shouldn't have done. You weren't supposed to cut off the corner of the king's robe. It was an offense. It was a sin to do that. It renders the king's robes ceremonially unclean and useful. They're like a prayer robe. This is, this is a big deal what David has done. For us, it just looks like he's like, you know, a ripped oaks jacket kind of thing. This is, a, this is a big deal. And David doesn't even know fully the imagery of what he's done. We don't have time um, to go into it now, but if you're making notes, go back and read this. When, when Saul disobeys the Lord, as it were, for the last time before he removes his presence from him, he grabs a hold of Samuel, and Samuel rips himself away. And Samuel says to him, the same way that you've tried to rip this, the Lord has ripped the kingdom from you. So there's, there's, there's multiple robes. And David comes out waving it like this. That's why Saul still has in his ears Samuel saying, the Lord has ripped the kingdom away from you and given it to another more deserving than you. And when David wanders out the cave holding a corner of his kingly robe, that's why Saul responds. He says, now I know that you're going to be the king. You're the one. Absolutely. Now it's confirmed. David didn't know about that interaction. He's just sneaking up and lopping a corner off the robe there. He doesn't even know fully what he's doing. But the imagery is not lost on Saul and it shouldn't be lost uh, on us. But the conviction hits David that what he's done is wrong. What he's done is wrong. Why am I making a big deal about this? Because if you put yourself in the same story and you've got a whole bunch of your men around you and they are <clears throat> misquoting truth, they're making it sound like a spiritual opportunity. The Lord, surely today is the day. The Lord has brought this guy into the cave. And remember, the Lord said he's going to give you victory against your enemies and you're going to be able to do whatever you want to them. This must be it. This must be the fulfillment of God's plan. And yet he goes ahead, he goes ahead with it and he gets cut to the heart because he knows that what he's done is wrong. He, know, he knows that what he's done is wrong. You, you see, you can be spurred on to do something, even by well-meaning people and by twisted truth, and it can still be wrong. And what a gift. This is a gift. This is worth shouting hallelujah from the rooftops. When you do something and conviction arrives in your heart, there's ways you can respond differently to it. Conviction is a gift that comes about through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that arrests you from either doing something or being about to do something that you shouldn't do and gets you back on track. It is whenever you feel the weight of conviction, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes the weight of conviction can feel very heavy can feel very heavy. It can feel one step away from condemnation. When that happens to your heart, don't despair. Shout hallelujah, because what it means is this, that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. That your heart has not become too hard to sense the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Father sends the Spirit to do, is to convict, to convict, to make you feel, oh, because there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. There's a massive difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction leads to repentance that leads to reconciliation. Are you following me? Conviction leads to repentance, to a change of heart and thinking and action that leads to being reconciled with God. Condemnation leads to judgment, which leads to despair. Condemnation is that there's a, there's a decision made about you and about your life and your action. 
Judgment's past. There's no hope for you. And it leads you where? To despair. And the Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. If you're a Christian, there's no condemnation for you. All that God deals with is conviction. So when you feel condemned about something, that is not God speaking. That's you listening to other voices when you feel condemned. When you feel convicted, that's the Spirit of God at work in you. And the response should be, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I'm sorry. Come back to him again. Let's go again. Condemnation and conviction are different. And David experiences uh, conviction. That's the first thing, the characteristic you see of a life yielded to God. The second characteristic you see is a, a life that refuses to circumvent God's timing. A life that refuses to shortcut God's timing. Picture the scene. You are David. You have been anointed uh, the king of Israel. You know, you know that you will be the king of this nation one day. You're rightfully the anointed one. You have uh, defeated Goliath, the nation's number one en enemy, and been celebrated for that and, and achieved other military things. Saul has now got a hit out on you, and it's forced you, as David, into a life in the wilderness. David's whole life is now existing in the wilderness. Basically, that's the story of 1 Samuel, even in the beginning of 2 Samuel. David goes from wilderness there to there to there. Look, the wilderness is, it's the wilderness. You know, it's not the wilderness down there by uh, Nasna, that wilderness. That, like, that's, don't think like the middle of the Karoo, like where there's nothing. It's even worse than that. Like, I hate the Karoo. It's, I just drive double speed. I don't, I don't. I stick to the speed limit, but I drive with my eyes closed because I can't bear the crew. It's awful. Some people love that vibe, you know, just rocks and sand and stuff. Lacquer, move there. But the rest of us, we're more the KZN feel, the lush, like green kind of vibes. This is David. He's living in the wilderness on the run. He's never like feed up. I'm just going to watch Supersport Blitz kind of thing. He's always looking over his back. Somebody's trying to get him the whole time. And he's got men with him. Men have been attached to him. I mean, the men that come and join him are, oh God, God, where is it? In, it's in 22. No, 21. 20. It's, hold on. I want to I read this to you. Oh, I can't, I should have made a note of it. It says all these men who gather around him, but it's all the oaks who are disconsolate, in debt, got nothing else to do. 400 of these oaks who are like basically no hopers, they all decide to go and be David's buddies out in the wilderness. I mean, he, he doesn't exactly have the A-team uh, with him there. So now he's surrounded by a bunch of whole deadbeats there uh, who did, he did improve them. But he's on the run, fearing for his life in the wilderness. And it's, it's not for like a couple of weeks, eh, guys. It's not for a couple of weeks. They estimate, if you read some commentaries, that this is 10 years of David's life. Ten years of David's life on the run in the wilderness because Saul just keeps on coming for him. And then you're parking off in a cave and in walks the oak who has forced you into a life on the run in the wilderness. He's on his own. He's coming to make a number two. He doesn't have a spear or anything or whatever. He drops his rods. This is the time. You just blitz him like with a spear. It'll all be finished. Picture, if I was a Hollywood director, 
you would have David running out the cave, holding Saul's head aloft there. Woohoo! You know, if it was a Bollywood version, you'd have all these mighty men coming out doing a synchronized dance uh, up and down the mountain there. You could go to town on this, but it's not how it happens, is it? It's not how it happens. You can see I've spent too much time in this story this week. He stands there and he sneaks off and he cuts the, the corner, but he comes back. Conviction hits him. And what happens? The rest of his men are saying, they're still going. They say, it's, this is the time. This is the opportunity. Surely, 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 surely. And David says, no ways. No ways. Surely God wouldn't want me to lift my hand against his anointed one. Doing this would violate the way God works. Doing this would short circuit what God actually ultimately wants to happen for my life. It's fast forwarding God's timing. Of course I don't want to be stuck in the wilderness. Of course I don't want to be on the run. Of course I don't want to live like a fugitive in my own land. But no, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. As easy as it is, I'm not going to do that. And he has to talk his men down. Uh, it says in, I think, the CSB that he persuaded his men. In the original language, it says that he basically tears into them. He rips them apart with his words. A lot of guys say, like, he actually had to physically restrain his men from going and fi finishing off Saul there. He has to really fight this because it would have been so easy to just finish off Saul. Life would have been so much easier. Then you're the king. But he refuses to shortcut God's timing and what God is doing. This is what a life yielded to God looks like. An ability to wait in the wilderness. God is never late, guys. God is never late. Some of you are sitting out this morning, you think God's late. You're sick and tired of waiting, you're frustrated, you're disappointed. You have issue with God, maybe you're giving him the silent treatment because he's still got you waiting for something. God is never, ever late. He has never been late, and he will never be late. And here it is another thing, God is not in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. God's timing is absolutely perfect. So if you're still waiting for something, there is a reason why you're waiting. God is wanting to do something in and through the waiting that he couldn't do if you didn't have to wait. There are many people who believe that the reason why God formed David so significantly is because he left him in the wilderness for such a long time. He first shapes him as a young man looking after sheep, you know, sort of like an also ran, like, but just go and look after the sheep. And most of the Psalms that you and I love, do you know where they were written? Yeah. Most of them come out of this time of what God was shaping and teaching David in the wilderness. Guys, none of us want to wait. None of us want to wait. None of us ever want to be in a space in the wilderness. Spiritually, physically, definitely not. We don't want to be in that space. But guys, we have to be convinced again and looking at David's life that God doesn't waste any of that wilderness. He's doing exactly what he wants to do. So if you're waiting for whatever it is, whatever it is, we have, there's too many of us here to even think of the different contexts here. Keep waiting. Keep waiting. Ask, what is he trying to teach you in the waiting? And we have to ask ourselves some sobering, hard questions. 
you know, what lies have we believed about God or about ourselves that want to short-circuit the way? You know, God wants me to be happy. God wants, God wants the best for my life. So this obviously looks like the best. So, I mean, okay, well, I'm just going to go this way around. I know God has said no to this, or it seems like God's closed this door, but I want, God wants me to be happy. God wants this for me, so I'm just going to take it. And when we do that, we shoot ourselves as it were in the foot. Circumventing God's timing is disastrous to our lives. I had a very engaging conversation with my eight-year-old the other day. I thought you were in Sunday school, buddy. We're working through it still. But it was a bit of a shouting match. It's not the proudest parenting moment I've ever had. And one of the things that I shouted at Jono was that he's given Claire and I to him as parents to parent him and shepherd him in the best way we know how. And that because we're older, a lot older than him and wiser a bit, that we, we sort of know, we know better for his life what he needs. Because he, he's eight, he doesn't know necessarily what he needs. He doesn't need all of the things that he was very vocally letting me know that he needed that, that morning. And we got into the shouting match and he shouted back at him and says, you don't know, you don't know what I need. You don't know what's best for me. And it, it made me think that that's sometimes how our relationship is with God. We shout back at God and say, you don't know what's best for me. You don't know, what, I know what's best for me. And it's this. And God looks down on us in love like a proper father, the best father, and says, I know exactly what's best for you. And if you don't have it yet, it's because it's not best for you. My desire is your best. It's always your best. God is always after your absolute best. And if you don't have it yet, it's not because he's holding out on you because he doesn't love you. It's because he has a better plan for your life than you have for your own life. Jono cannot concoct the best plan for his own life. Sorry, buddy, you can't. I know you, we'll talk about this again later, but you can't. <laughs> the third thing you see in a life yielded to God is that it's a life that leaves vengeance up to God. It's a life that leads vengeance up to God. David is committed to this. In verse 12, he says, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me. But my hand will never be against you. David's willing to let the Lord deal with his problems. I mean, if, you, if you're taking notes, write down chapter 26, because you would think, and I just want to rewind this. I forgot to mention this under the conviction thing. You see in David a change of heart in this conviction thing. You see it again later after the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. Conviction again that changes the way that he lives. Conviction is meant to change the course of our lives and the patterns of our behavior. And you see an interesting thing in this interaction with Saul. When David comes out and he gives his whole speech and then Saul gives his whole speech back. He's like, you're a much better person than I am. He's basically saying to David, I know you're going to be the king. Like, and you would think like, that phase ends. Saul finally, like, the penny drops, and he's like, okay, I'm going to stop hunting this guy. You know, he's going to be the king. Okay, like, you're a better person. Like, okay, like, fine. Okay, you know, shake hands. It's a truce. Like, off he goes. You would think that's how it works, but it's not. It keeps going for years after that incident. Saul still hunts David. 
And you see another incident in chapter 26 where Saul with his army, again hunting David, and David sneaks in with one of his sidekicks, and the Lord causes a deep sleep to come over all of them. He basically wanders in there, and he stands, up, he stands next to Saul, and he steals his spear and a water jug from next to him. And the assistant is like, ooh, pick me, coach, pick me, coach. I'm ready to turn this. Okay, I'm just gonna, I just need it. It's a wonderful word. He says, I just need to spear him once. He's like, and I'll do a proper job right into the ground. That's what it says. You can read it. Verse chapter 26. The guy is super keen to like just turn all the soul into society right there. But he's, David says, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. This is the Lord's anointed again. We're not short-circuiting uh, what God wants to do. We're not taking matters into our own hands. We are leaving it up to the Lord. We're going to trust in his plan. We're going to leave vengeance to him. And so they take his, his, uh, his spear and the water jug, and they disappear, and then they call back over the valley to them and say, hey, you know, you guys have done a rubbish job of protecting the king. And Saul again is cut to the heart. He says, oh, David, you're much better than I am. Oh, oh. Conviction, that's, a, that's remorse, what you see in Saul. And when, when, when we encounter sin in, in your life and you fall on your face again, that's what remorse looks like. It's like, oh, I've been caught out. Oh, oh. But it doesn't actually produce any change going forward. There's not a renewed commitment by God's grace in God's strength to live differently and to live more faithfully and obediently and with a greater striving towards holiness. It's, it's just a remorse. It's an empty regret. That's all you see and saw, and it has no power and no legs. And in David, you see something different. You see this life that leaves room for vengeance for God. They have two opportunities to finish Saul off. And he doesn't take them. He is fully committed and he says to his sidekick, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but the Lord will deal with this guy. He says either he'll die of old age or he'll die in battle or something, but we won't be the ones to execute judgment on this guy. And it's exactly what happens. Saul dies in battle. David becomes the king. And Saul embodies a, a life of trusting God, a life yielded to God. So he gets two opportunities to finish off and to, and to become the king, to finish off his enemy who's chasing him, forcing him to life in the wilderness, and he doesn't take it. He's so committed to trusting God with his future. It's, it's easy for us to say that about David. It's another thing for us to say, hey, God, please would you help me not to be somebody who just wants to engineer my own future and to circumvent your principles. Guys, not every, not every open door is a door to be walked through. Not every open door. Some doors will just lead to your own soul's destruction or trip you up. They baited some of those doors to lead you away from intimacy with God. That's why we have the Word and that's why we have the discernment of the Spirit in us. And that's why we have Christian community. You run decisions and opportunities through that kind of a, a grid, a framework, to know whether you should, um, here's, a, here's a great example, whether you should sling a stone at a giant, or whether you should walk away from a king. See, David wasn't afraid of killing people. He wasn't afraid of killing people. He killed lots of people, tens of thousands. He lopped off 200 oaks foreskins for a, a thing, Labola payment, if you missed last week's sermon. That's, you need to go and watch the video just for that part. 
He wasn't afraid of, uh, of violence, but he knew when to use what. And he's driven by something more substantial. It's not about David. It's about obedience to what God is wanting him to do. And he knew that in the Goliath instant, you need to throw the stone. And in the sore instance, it's time to not do anything, but entrust it to the Lord. We can look at that and say, Lord, would you help us to live a life like that? The last thing we see in a life yielded to God is that it shows grace to the undeserving. It shows grace to the undeserving. There is nothing at all in Saul's life or in his behavior or in his character or his approach to David that deserves any of the grace that David showed him. There's nothing. Saul had never done anything helpful for David, given him a leg up, given him an opportunity, opened doors for him, whatever that David felt like he owed Saul something. The exact opposite. The exact opposite. And yet what do you see in David? You see him extending grace to his main enemy. Somebody tweeted something that was profound the other day. Some of you would have seen it. It said that the test of Christianity is not that you love Jesus. It's that you love Judas. And how we love and treat our enemies says something so much more profound about us than just some emotional sentimentalism about the person of Jesus. This is the teaching of Jesus. This is the miracle that the Holy Spirit brings about in us. Those who follow Jesus, yeah, we love him, but we, he enables us to love our enemies, to good, do good to them, to bless them, and not to curse them, to pray for them. These are all injunctions of Jesus to people whose hearts have been transformed because we understand that we have received the grace that we never deserved, and so we're able to give out grace to others who are not deserving. Who, this morning, as you sit here this morning, does not deserve your grace? Who are you withholding grace from? There'll be somebody. There'll be somebody. And the Holy Spirit will be poking around in your heart to say, hey, you've given up extending grace to them. You're holding them at arm's length. You self-righteously feel you're better than them. The Spirit of God is poking around in your heart to say, you didn't deserve grace. You've been lavishly given it. And the call is to be a conduit of that same grace to others so that you can go free. <laughs> so that you can go free. As we close, yet again this week, David's life points us to someone better, doesn't it? This is not the series of like, be better, be more like David again and again. Week after week, we're going to say this. David's life points us to someone so much better because there was another one who found himself in the wilderness faced with temptation to short-circuit God's plan. And with Satan whispering in Jesus' ears and bending truth, twisting God's words, Jesus refuses to short-circuit what God wanted him to do, what his Father wanted him to do. And he follows that hard road that the Father asked him to walk all the way to the cross, all the way to the cross, so that you and I could sit here today as the friends of God, forgiven, reconciled to Him. He never gave in to the temptation to shortcut things. He does it again and again through His life. You see Him in the garden of Gethsemane wrestling. 
head if, if there's another way, but there isn't. It goes through with it faithfully to, to secure everything that we most deeply need. Jesus is always the true and better David. And I want to pray for us this morning. I know that I've mentioned a lot, and it's been a lot all over the place. These narratives always touch on so many different things. And so as we come to the Lord in communion this morning, it gives us a wonderful opportunity to sit before the Lord, and there's communion. Am I right? I'm not imagining I saw communion. Okay. I, want, I want to pray for us. I was struck by um, the reminder in Scripture this week that when you come to communion, you should examine yourself before you eat. I was struck by those words again. It's like, examine yourself. Don't just, hey, it's communion quickly. Hey, Doug's gone on a bit long. Let's quickly get communion and a song done so we can get on with the day. So this is a this is a celebration, this is a meal through which, through which the Lord imparts grace and mercy and help, spiritual strength to us. It's not just a cup and a little wafer. There is a spiritual strengthening that happens through the remembrance and the act of communion, the real presence of Jesus amongst us. And so I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for different um, ways in which we may respond. And I want to encourage you to examine your own heart and how you have to respond um, to what the Lord may be saying to you this morning, and then we'll eat and drink together in our own time as the, as the band.